the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Chapter 6, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of our Lord and they will stand forever. All right, so the four basic elements of a good plot include setting, conflict, climax, resolution, right? That's what makes up any good story. You may learn that in English Lit or some other class. Uh, Several of you participated in the Campus Movie Fest last week, and you told stories. You told them in five- or six-minute bits. I saw a few of your short stories. They were incredible. Like, you guys really did a good job. I saw this one flick. I think it was an Adam Mortensen joint. This included a lot of our freshmen made this, made this uh, short film, and it was really good. Um, the four basic elements of the plot were there. You had the setting, and it was the campus. You had conflict. The main character, played by Anna Rose, was uh, she was... She was conflicted internally. She wasn't able to make friends, and that was the conflict. And then there was this kind of big moment, the climax, where she was sad, and she was weeping, and she was journaling at her desk. And then the resolution, when the very friendly Rebecca Lamb comes to the rescue. So uncharacteristic of her. Like, she was, <laughs> she was acting so hard in that scene. But you have the movement of the story there. Even this semester, we've seen the movement of the story. We've spent a lot of time in the setting, right? Like a lot of weeks in the setting of this story. We've picked up on some of the conflict, especially in Moses' heart. But tonight is where we really get to the heart of the conflict. As we offer a kind of a broad sweep through these five chapters. I'll warn you, like covering this is like watching uh, one of those major action kind of like sequences in a Marvel movie. 
where everything like slows down for a minute and it's just like explosion here and then this guy does something there and then a building blows up and like the music gets really loud and the and the like cinematography gets really slow and you're like who's that actor i know him from something and then you check imdb on your phone and but then it's still going and it's just so much action all right that's what this is right like we're just flying through this action sequence like a marvel movie but conflict, as we'll see in the story, is so multidimensional. Uh, sometimes conflict is inward. Sometimes it's outward. And sometimes it's both. In this story, the conflict isn't just between Moses and Pharaoh. It's actually between Pharaoh and God. But actually the conflict becomes even more personal in this story as it moves into our own hearts. So here's the adventure. First, there's the conflict of control. Most everyone who's written... Uh, on this section of Exodus shows that there's this obvious positioning of power uh, going on in this passage. Who's really in control? In one corner you have Pharaoh of Egypt, who the Egyptians held to be a living God. He was a deity in their own land. And then in the other corner you have this Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. He's a lesser God in the Egyptians' mind. He's a non-issue in Pharaoh's mind. And you hear the arrogance in his initial response to, it's kind of like Yahweh said what? Like he just didn't care. And you hear that when Moses and Aaron go to him and they say, the Lord, Yahweh said to let my people go. And he's like, who is the Lord that I should let his people go? I mean, just so much arrogance in his response. He couldn't be more clear. He believes himself to be the greater deity. And no one questions his control, especially the God of those slaves. And so just to prove his superiority, we skipped over it, but he not only doesn't let the Israelites go at first, but he makes their works exponentially more difficult. Like he keeps them just to to show how strong he is. And he makes their lives so much harder. And then that's the moment in chapter 5 where in the movies you wonder how will the good guy ever get out of this situation? Like how will the protagonist get out of this? He's in over his head. That's the conflict. Well, here's how. Pharaoh thinks he's in control, right? But it won't be long before he starts to realize how out of control he really is. He He doesn't let God's people go at first, but it's interesting because also God doesn't let him go at first either. He holds on to him. Pharaoh is like flexing to show the Israelites his, that he has them in his grasp. But the truth is that God holds all kings in the palm of his hand. One of the Proverbs puts it that way. It says a king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. And he will turn it wherever he will. So Moses and Aaron return back to Pharaoh with another message from the Lord. He's like, okay, if you don't let us go, our God is going to flex And you will not be able to stand anymore against his judgment, which is exactly what happened. God sends Moses to offer these warnings ten different times. And if Pharaoh doesn't relent and let God's people go, then God would bring acts of judgment against Egypt. And he does. And these are the plagues, the famous plagues on Egypt. So the first nine plagues, I'm not going through all the plagues, the first nine plagues, are covered in full detail in chapter 7 through 10. There are a lot of different plagues. There's frogs and locusts and gnats and darkness and hell. Have you ever wondered, like, why these plagues? Like, why didn't God, I don't know, rain down, like, pine cones or something? Like, 
I don't know, let wharf rats run around. Like, why is it these particular things? Y'all know what wharf rats are? Are those just in Alabama? Okay, they're big rats. Like, why didn't he do big rats? I don't know. But why these plagues? I, I thought about that a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one, one pastor named Rankin Wilburn has been really helpful for me as I've thought through the series. He's a pastor. It's a PCA pastor out in L.A. And he helped me to see that these, these plagues are, like, really specific to, to, to Egypt. That God acts with tremendous precision, even in his judgment. Rankin said that these plagues were surgically directed at something that Egypt considered sacred in their culture. In other words, God is tearing down with like surgical exactness the idols of Pharaoh and of Egypt. Let me give you three quick examples from the plagues. The Nile River represented for Egypt all of this like wealth and prosperity, right? This was the Nile. This was like their livelihood. So much life came from that river, and God turned the river into blood, and death came from the river. That's the first plague. He cut off their economic health. The frogs, that one seems weird and creepy. The frogs plague, that's the second one. That was meant to show that God was greater than specifically one of the Egyptians, Egyptian gods, the god of fertility, who was often depicted with a frog's head. So you have frogs. And then there was the sun god, Ra. You've heard of Ra. Ra was this Egyptian deity who was thought to win over the darkness every day. And then God sends darkness to cover Egypt for three days. Total darkness over Egypt. This is totally a side note. Uh, The other day, Lucy and I, Lucy's our oldest daughter, we were uh, in the front yard shooting basketball for a moment. I was. She was not. And uh, it was her goal. That's fine. All of a sudden, she hears, like, there's a car coming around the corner, and it sounds like a bunch of crickets. You know, cars, like, the sound in the distance, they're kind of like... She runs into the garage, like, freaks out, takes off running into the garage. I'm like, whoa, 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 what's wrong? And she said, I thought the sun was about to go down. I was like, what are you talking about? She said, I thought those were the crickets. You remember the eclipse day when everything went dark and the crickets made all that noise? I thought the sun was about to go down really quickly. (laughs) So it made me think about the eclipse day with this. Like we've experienced darkness in the middle of the day. You remember how weird that feeling is, right? This is for three days. Three days. Total darkness covering the earth. Ironically, the only light that existed here in those three days was in Israel's camp. God's light wins over Egypt's God of light. He's in control. There's no contest of power. Yahweh stands as the one true God. So from the plagues, we learn a couple of really important things. One, we learn that God demands and deserves full obedience to his will. Since Yahweh alone is the one true God, he writes the rules and we respond to what he's revealed. He alone is holy and his will is right. So what he says we should do, we should do. It's honoring to him and it's good for us. He demands and deserves our obedience. But the second thing we learn is that we also learn that in any event that any one of his image bearers, that's us, that we do not respond in obedience, his holy judgment will come down. Even from the beginning in the garden, we learn that Adam and Eve were to obey If they were to obey, they would live. But if they did the thing that he said not to do, it would bring about death in their lives. Why? Because God 
cannot coexist with sin. Light cannot coexist with darkness. So either we live with Him in the light in perfect obedience, or we come to know darkness apart from Him. I'll never forget a song that we used to sing in the campus ministry I was involved in in college. We sang kind of a version of it tonight, the first song. Uh, it's a really simple song to learn. We would just sing. You may have sung it at some point in your life. It's like it goes, holy, you are holy. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are holy. And then you kind of repeat that. Have you ever heard that song before? It's a really simple song. And then verse 2 goes something like, worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. Y'all know the song? Okay. Well, it's nice because you can substitute any like attribute of God in there, right? So one night we were having this like song singing prayer service type thing with our campus ministry. And so whoever was leading it was kind of like, all right, what's another attribute of God? So we're throwing out different things, holy, lovely, worthy, you know, gracious. And somebody's like, wrathful. (laughs) So we sang, wrathful, you are wrathful. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are wrathful. That's an uncomfortable song. But it is a biblical reality. This is part of God's character that we need to kind of deal with. God's wrath is his judgment against sin of any kind. Obey and you will live. Rebel and you will die. The ten plagues are but a glimpse into the power of the wrath of God poured out against sin. And so here's where the conflict moves from the pages of the Bible and the story of Pharaoh to our own hearts. Because I'd imagine as you read this passage, and especially as we move to the 10th plague next week, we have to begin asking some uncomfortable questions. Questions like, is a wrathful God a fair God? Is he loving? Or even more directly, what do you make of this idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in 7.3? I mean, if God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, how does that make Pharaoh responsible for what Pharaoh's doing? It's a hard question. So now we move from the conflict of control to the conflict of culpability, because it started with a C. In other words, here's the question. Who's really to blame for the conflict in this passage? Is God sovereign over Israel's situation in Egypt? And does he really harden Pharaoh's heart? Or is Pharaoh responsible for all this rebellion? Does he harden his own heart? The biblical answer is yes. Now, I do not pretend that this is easy to understand or it's very hard to accept. But here's the truth. We take God at his own words. I think this is where Clary was so helpful tonight. We take God at his own words. Sometimes when we don't understand, we take God at his own words and we begin to wrestle with the truths that he presents in his word. And one of the main themes over and over again you see throughout the scripture from the beginning to the end is two things are simultaneously true. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. These are not opposite truths. They are twin truths, the same reality. There's so many great passages I could point to to illustrate this balance. One example is in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where the Apostle Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like responsibility, right? And he goes on to say in the very next breath, For it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. That's God's sovereignty. 
Twin truths. And so God's interaction with Pharaoh illustrates this with perfect balance as well, because it's actually like 20 times in Exodus that it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Ten times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And ten times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Even this story shows the balance of this biblical reality. I came across a quote from Charles Simeon of Cambridge from the first half of the 19th century. He borrowed an illustration from the Industrial Revolution to try to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I think some of you engineers will appreciate this quote. He said, As wills in a complicated machine move in opposite directions and yet subserve a common end, so many truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally subserve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. The reality is that Pharaoh is evil because of his own rebellion against God and because of his own sinful choices. He refused to listen to God. He refused to repent. He refused to worship the one true God. And sometimes, sometimes, God in his justice will leave us in our rebellion. And he is perfectly just in doing so. But God is not culpable for Pharaoh's sin. He is not to blame. Pharaoh alone is responsible. C.S. Lewis points out in one of his essays that we have reversed the question that we should be asking. Instead of approaching God out of humility and asking for grace, we approach God out of arrogance and we demand that he defend himself. He says that instead of placing ourselves on the witness stand in God's court where we belong, we, we place God on the witness stand. And we ask him to defend himself. This is what C.S. Lewis calls God in the dock. The witness stand is the dock is another term for that. Here's the quote. He says, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war or poverty or disease, he is ready to listen. The trial may even end with God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench, the judge's bench, and God is in the dock. That's the unfortunate reversal that we have brought to the scriptures. We so often look to accuse God for his actions rather than look within for what might actually be wrong with us. So we look at a passage like this and we say, is God fair? Absolutely he's fair. He is just in bringing judgment against sin in Pharaoh's case and also in ours. Because the same warning is given to us, obey. Obey and you will live. Rebel. And you will know nothing but chaos. The reality is that Pharaoh's rebellion shows us our own rebellion. Our problem is his problem. God calls us to perfect obedience, yet the sin in our heart shows us that we simply haven't done it and we can't. And this really is the true heart of the conflict in the passage. It's the conflict of our own hearts. Because of our rebellion, we actually deserve the plagues and so much more. We do. We deserve God's wrath and his judgment because we care so much more about what others think about us than what God thinks about us. We care so much more about what makes sense in our own minds rather than what God tells us can make sense of our entire lives. We continually fall to selfishness and jealousy and lust and greed and pride rather than humble ourselves before God and say, have mercy on me. 
Sin has so spread throughout our lives and it affects everything. Like a cancer moving throughout one's body, sin multiplies and destroys our thought life, our relationships, our friendships. Even our motivations and our goals and our ambitions are still affected by sin. So what do we do about it? Follow the illustration for a moment. Someone whose body is riddled with cancer needs something powerful. Something even radioactive to enter into their bodies to do battle with those horrible cells. And someone who's fighting cancer often feels very weak when they're in the middle of the battle. And so many of us know all too well what that looks like, what that literally looks like to have a friend or loved one go through something like chemo. And you just hope that it's working. You just hope that it's working on the inside and they'll come out on the other side so much more healthy. So how, do we, how are we made well on the inside, spiritually speaking? We need something more powerful than sin to enter in from the outside to combat it for us. Which leads us to the conflict of the cross. This is so important. Have you ever wondered... You ever wondered why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't there have been some other way, like some easier way to settle the score? I think if we ask that question, we're not really taking our own sin seriously enough. Again, our rebellion is no different than Pharaoh's. We too have fashioned our own gods that we serve. Our hearts are in conflict with the heart of God. And we're God's people. We're in conflict because of the bondage of an evil king. We are in such deeper bondage because of our own sin. And so deliverance comes at a great cost. God promises Israel in this passage. I want to read again a couple of verses. He promises Israel in this passage to bring them out of slavery. Listen again, starting in 6.5. When he says, I've heard the groanings of my people and of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Listen, how does God deliver his people? Through great acts of judgment, through his outstretched arm, and through a redemption plan to set his people free and to bring them safely home. Which he does in the climactic passage that we're going to come to next week. But before we get there, we have to see that we really are in this conflict too. If you're a Christian, you need to see that your deliverance has come at a great cost. In order to be delivered from our bondage to sin, someone had to take on God's judgment. There's no other way. There's no deliverance without suffering. And if you're not a Christian, if you're wrestling through what this means, and if this is a God that you want to follow, I want you to hear how God has provided deliverance from the conflict that you are feeling in your own life, and maybe even suppressing, hoping no one notices and that you really don't have to deal with it. God offers you something better. So how does God deliver us from our bondage? Through a great act of judgment, through his outstretched arms, through a redemption plan to set his people free and bring them safely home. So is God just? Absolutely he is. Which is exactly why Jesus Christ had to die. For your sins and for mine, for the wages of sin is death. 
And in order for us to know freedom in life, Jesus had to know death for us. And he stretches out his arms on the cross. And God's judgment fell directly on Jesus. That deliverance might fall on us. He is just. He is loving. And he is in control. God not only writes the story, but he writes himself into the conflict to take the conflict on himself. Not only is God just and loving, but he is in control of the whole narrative. It's so interesting in Acts 2. I've referenced this before in a large group. When Peter is preaching the sermon at Pentecost, and he's basically rebuking the religious leaders for killing Jesus. He says Jesus died because of two things. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. This is in Acts 2. He basically says, you Jews, you killed him. A man who did not deserve to die, you killed him. And in the next breath he said, according to the foreknowledge of God. According to his definite plan, Peter said. In Egypt, during the night plague, darkness, during the ninth plague, darkness fell over the earth. In Israel's camp was the only light for three days. On the day that Jesus was crucified on the cross, it was from the sixth hour until the ninth, darkness fell over the earth once again. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pastor Tim Keller notes that this is the only prayer of Jesus is in the Gospels where he doesn't call God Father. Why? Because in that moment, Jesus lost his relationship with the Father to whatever degree we don't fully understand. But he set aside his relationship with the Father so that we might have a relationship with the Father. In that moment, Jesus took on all of the plagues and so much more that we might be set free from our bondage. And this time the light, even in Israel, was put out for three days. Wrathful. You are wrathful. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are wrathful. Jesus takes on the wrath of God on the cross. There's this amazing scene at the end of the movie Gran Torino that I want to paint for you. A disclaimer. Gran Torino is a horrible movie. And I would never recommend you see this movie from up front. It's like the language is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. But I'll, I want to paint this picture for you. The lead character in Gran Torino is this guy named Walt, Ko- Walt, Ko- Walt Kowalski. And Walt is played by Clint Eastwood. Walt is a Korean War vet and a retired, old, terrible curmudgeon just living in a neighborhood in Detroit that has recently turned ethnically diverse. And he hates it. And he's angry, he's lonely, he's mean, he's racist, he's hateful. And most of his anger throughout the movie is directed toward his Asian neighbors, and particularly the teenagers. He has this background in the Korean War, and he's taken it out on these kids in his neighborhood. So as the movie goes on, Walt forms an unlikely friendship, if you could call it that, with a young guy named Tao, who he calls Toad. Tao comes from a rough family, has no direction in life. He is uh, being influenced to join the local gang. And Walt's fatherly affection for Tao 
increasingly grows. And toward the end of the movie, Walt gets wind that this gang is basically after Tao and, and planning to kill him and his sister. And so late one night, Walt goes to confront the gang himself. But he had a clear plan in mind. He walks up to the house where all these gang members are lining up on the front porch. They're looking out their windows. Everyone comes out. They come to the windows. They come to the door. They line the porch, and all of them have guns dialed in on Walt Kowalski as he stands in the yard. And he screams at them terrible things. He makes such a scene. All the neighbors start coming out of their houses down the streets, and they're looking, watching the scene unfold. And he just stands there, and he's yelling things at them, talking about what they've done in the neighborhood. And he takes out a cigarette, and he puts a cigarette in his mouth. And he stands there, and he says, Does anyone have a light? As they start yelling all these crazy things back to him. And and then uh, he says, I've got a light. In the Clint Eastwood voice, I'm not going to try to do an impression. He says, I've got a light. And he reaches into his jacket to get his lighter, and they unload their guns on him. And he just goes down. All of them shooting, shooting, shooting. And he falls down on the ground, holes in his chest. And literally the way they depict this, he throws his arms out to the side on the ground and blood begins to run down his hands. His death for his friend's freedom. His friend who was once an enemy now is no longer in bondage to this gang because all the neighbors saw the whole thing happen and the whole group is taken off to jail. Justice, justice is served. I just want you to hear something. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. He's not some old curmudgeon, some mean guy. This is God himself. The Son of God come into the world perfect. No sin on his record, not a stain. And he comes and he willingly lays down his life for you and for me, who were once his enemies. And he calls us friends. And with his arms stretched out on the cross and blood running down his hands, he offers you real freedom from death, freedom from bondage, and real hope in this life. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to deliver his people from bondage. But I wonder, I just wonder if he might just be softening yours to receive the good news for your conflict even tonight. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help such a difficult passage, a difficult message sink deeply into our hearts. Soften our hearts to receive your grace. We rebel against this kind of thing because we don't like to see it in our own lives. I know I don't. Help us to see your outstretched arms, the love that you have for your people, and help us to lean into that good news that Jesus really did die for sin.